G'day and welcome to Occupied. My name is Brock Cook and this is your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today I had the distinct pleasure of having a chat with two amazing ladies who have just started another podcast. Kay and JJ have decided they're going to delve into the topic that a lot of OTs sort of get a bit squirmish about talking about with clients, and that is sex and everything that goes along with it. So there will be a slight language warning on this, but it won't be from me. Who better to say it than Kay and JJ? OT After Dark is a podcast run by two occupational therapists and is for adults only. We believe that sex and sexual pleasure are a human right for consenting adults, regardless of ability, age, gender, or sexual orientation. We discuss topics that are outside the traditional sex model. To be true to our strong views regarding inclusivity, we use common and slang terms regarding sexual topics, which may be considered explicit. Listener discretion is advised. We're starting out with bondage toys. We're, that one's going to be released tomorrow. So. Yeah. <laughs> I did. I was talking to someone. Oh, because I did a podcast with Mandy Chamberlain yesterday. And um, we were talking about you guys. And I'm like, they recorded something the other day. Didn't really say what it was. But one of the hashtags was something like adaptive sex toys. So I'm like, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> I'm like, just trying to pick up all the clues and all the hints. Or adaptive bondage. <laughs> yeah, that's something I, well, I'd never thought of it, but it's something that I guarantee most people hadn't thought of. No, and it was something when we, when I stumbled upon this one website that um, like a, a rather big sex toy company that specializes in, in bondage toys, and they have a whole separate section of their website that's all about helping people with disabilities have sex. And it's like, they recommend positions and equipment. That's awesome. It's yeah, brilliant. it's fantastic. So it's like an online and, store. Uh, yeah, and they're in like in like sex toy stores. The um, yeah, and we went around to our local stores, and 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 every store we went to, they had their products. That's cool. So they're pretty accessible, and much to our excitement, the CEO agreed to talk to us. Oh, so that's who you're talking to? Yeah. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> Well, it's, you know, good advertising for him as well, I guess. Right. Or for the, for the company more than him, but yeah. Oh, that's wicked. And you're doing, you're obviously keeping things anonymous, I'd say, at this stage, according to your oh, message yeah. the other day. Yeah. That's, that's fair. <laughs> that's Nicknames. Fair. Nicknames. What the we're, K, we're, K well, and JJ. Like K and JJ is, yeah, we're using nicknames right now. That's fair enough. We're not sure. For the most part... We're getting very positive feedback, but a, a hint of people a little unsure of our approach. I think, or I mean, I think it should be fun if you're talking about sex. I, yeah, and I, I that was one of the reasons. Like, as soon as I found it, I'm like, I have to talk to these two because <laughs> not because of that, like because you're taking a an approach that I could easily foresee a lot of people going what. And I'm like, this is yeah. a this is a great way of doing it, rather than just you know, I don't know what I don't think there is any other podcast OT related. There's a there's one 
OT on, I think I found her on Instagram that does like sexuality, talks about sexuality and stuff. That's probably, I think her name's Catherine Ellis. She's got like the sex and intimacy. Yeah, that's the one. Um, Because heaps heaps of people have been asking me if you guys are her. I'm like, no, it's not her. No, no. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. Like, no, there are more than one person that would like to talk about this kind of stuff. So Yeah, right. As there should be. There should be more than one. There should be everyone willing to talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah. So what how why? Explain why. Why why? I would say it started um so we both we both are in academia. Yep. Um we both teach in an OT assistant program, which I hear, I was listening to your podcast. You guys don't have CODAs, which I found interesting, but that's a separate topic. Yeah. Um, so we, we both teach and um, there's a conference coming up in the States about taboo. So, yeah. So um, I was putting together a proposal for um, the study for the, the society for the study of occupation, which is an occupational science conference. So pretty much anybody that's doing occupational science work um, in the U.S. is is going to this conference. And so this conference theme was um, um, the dark side of occupation. I've heard about this one. Yeah, yeah. um, Things that are taboo, illegal, or or risky. Um, And so then I started looking into um, alternative sexual practices with people with disabilities, specifically looking at BDSM, so bondage, um, you know, sadomasochism, all of that, and, and how how that works in that community. And through a lot of this research, I started to realize that within the OT community, we're not really talking about sex. Um, There's a lot of sex with spinal cord injury, but in terms of people that may have like, you know, CP or MS or these other kind of physical disabilities, we're, we're kind of ignoring them almost, which to me became a huge occupational justice issue. Mm. So then while she was researching that, I'm starting, we're both in doctoral programs and I'm starting to look into my research. Um, and I have two good friends with inflammatory bowel disease, one with Crohn's, one with ulcerative colitis. And I, I had them come talk to my students last year, just about how IBD was impacting their life. Um, and so much came out of that that surprised me. But one of the things that came out of that was, well, if we have people who's besides the digestive issues that we know about common things with IBD are fatigue all the time, pain, depression, anxiety. And I'm like, well, those are certainly things that are going to have a negative impact on sex and intimacy, but neither of them had ever been referred to OT for anything. (laughs) So, so then, so then we kind of were getting in this conversation of, again, there's all these, all these populations of people that are kind of, we're just not getting at. Yep. Um, and then one day I was driving into work, listening to a podcast, and I thought, well, we need to just start our own podcast. And I had it all planned in my head. And then I got to work and I saw her and I said, we're starting a podcast. And she said, will it be about taboo things? And I was like, <laughs> we're talking about sex. And here we are. And that was only like six weeks ago. <laughs> it doesn't take long. It's an easy medium to get into. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming you are more than familiar with Rebecca Twinley's work on the dark side of occupation then yeah yeah she's um in the process of putting together a textbook about it oh because i'm i'm involved in that 
So I had I had heard about that conference. Oh, you have. Oh, I have great. heard. Are, yeah. are you going to come? You should come. It'll be fun. I wish. I wish. <laughs> if it wasn't on the other side of the world and I didn't have so many things already put planned and booked in this year, then yeah, I might have might have been able to wrangle it. But it'll be. I'm actually looking forward to that textbook because I think it's one of like just the concept of dark occupations is something that. I think most of us know they're there, but again, probably similar in the same boat as like talking about sex. It we just ignore it because it's either too complicated or too hard, or we feel like there's other things that are a higher priority to you know do thing do with people. So I'd like to see that stuff standardized. Like people should know. Yeah, it's the same as like. So I've always worked in mental health, and the sex thing comes up a lot in that because a lot of the side effects for some of the medications that people use have sexual impact, like impact on sex, you know, whether it's. Right. Yeah. You know, Decreased libido yeah. and, or inability to orgasm. And But what's interesting is yeah. when you look in, like I was just looking in a few mental health textbooks, like the, like what we have in our education system for OT. And all, there was like one paragraph in one book about preventing STDs. It was about safe sex. Yeah, and no, and that's it. nothing else mentioned about addressing sexual activity and mental health. I remember having to like really, really argue with a doctor, like on a client's behalf, because the medication that the the guy was on, yes, it was having an, a, a positive impact on his, um, you know, positive mental health symptoms, but it, he wasn't able to get an erection, and to him, that was a bigger issue. Like he didn't, right. he, he would rather have voices and be able to perform than, yeah. you know, not have voices and not be able to perform. Mm-hmm. And even like from that mental health perspective, like if we're looking at like, okay, now we don't, you know, you're not able to have an erection or an orgasm. What does that then do for your mental health state in general? You, you kind of lose that intimacy mm-hmm. with, with another person. Um, and that's going to have a pretty significant impact. Well, that was, and that's the thing, like he was... I think he was probably mid thirties. Um, he was single, but he was like, you know, how I'm, I can't, I can't make a relate, I can't have a relationship. Like, how, how am I supposed to do this? If or I can't, masturbation, yeah, like, or that. You know, like you don't even have to have a partner yeah. to, to be able to. But he, enjoy yeah, it just it, that that for me <laughs> that was a few years ago. But that for me was sort of where it really like I'd always I'd, I'd never overly been afraid of talking about it. Usually when it came up. Um, but it was that point that I went, this is having a bigger impact than some of the actual, like what we, what we would look at as the positive mental health symptoms. Like this yeah. is more important to some people. And, and I think it's so easy to forget to bring it up. Oh, like yeah. we're all, we're talking about all the bathing and toileting and can you get through your day? And, mm-hmm. um, and no, no client is going to bring that up with us. <laughs> No. So we have the ones to be comfortable to be able to bring, you know, to bring up that subject. And I do wonder whether uh, I've got a fairly strong opinion that OTs as a profession, we're, we're very, I don't know what the word would be. We're very sort of tame. We're very quiet. We're very, we, we want to help people and we don't want to cause much ruckus and that kind of stuff. I, I just think as a profession, those personality traits don't lead in well to 
instigating conversations that, you know, might be uncomfortable for the therapist. Yeah, and it, I've always wondered, like, how how can we change that? How can we make therapists talk about with clients things that they may feel uncomfortable talking about just in general? I was going to say, Katie <laughs> here is has a genius strategy with our students. I'm well, I tell that. our students from, from day one, I tell them that I'm going to talk about sex so much over the course of the curriculum, I want them to be bored. Like, I just want it to be boring. Um, and if you can get used to your teacher up there talking about masturbation and sex toys and positioning. I mean, I we did a lecture last week when we were talking about a sinal cord injury, and it was a series of drawings of sex positions that we were doing activity analysis on. And I do, I just want them to be bored. I want them to be just casual about it. Yeah. So then that way it becomes more comfortable. It's like, okay, I'm going to talk to you about toileting. I'm going to talk to you about sex. It's just, this is, this is what we talk about. And it's, well, that's the one of the things know? they ask, like, how do we bring it up? I said, well, bring it up when you bring up ADLs. Like, so as an OT, we want to work in your activities, of daily living. That includes bathing, toileting, sexual activity, just throw it in there. So at least they know, that we can address that because most people don't. And then that, mm. I think that opens up a line of communication later on in the intervention process. Like, then they can be like, yeah. you know, you mentioned sex the first day that we talked. <laughs> Let's go back I've been to thinking that. about that. Can we talk more about that? And that's like, but in my experience, clients are usually more comfortable talking about it than the therapist. Mm -hmm. Like I've, yeah. see, I've <laughs> seen clients that'll bring it up and then the therapist goes, oh, oh no. <laughs> all shy and they're, they're not even talking about anything way out there or anything just you know if it's an injury like when can I start having sex again or you know I, rem I remember when I was a student and I had to I was working on a like a medical outpatient ward or outpatient for a medical ward and one of my projects for that placement was I had to redesign their it was like a uh, I think it was three week course thing for people that had back then it was open heart surgery and it was about, you know, all of the different precautions and, you know, when they can start doing this and that. And I remember there being a bit in there about, so I put a bit in there about sex and I remember being absolutely, you know, however old I was being absolutely terrified to say this little 30 second bit in the hot, in the, you know, it's a three week course and this 30 second bit, I was just dreading the whole time to say it like in front of a room full of people. So I'm like, oh, probably just rushed over it kind of thing. And now I think back and I'm like, you're an idiot. <laughs> why do they care? Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why is that any different from, you know, going to the toilet yeah, or right. you know, having a shower? Mm -hmm. It's not like I'm yeah. showing them how to do it. I'm just explaining, you know, what precautions mainly for the sternum because it was wired. And, you know, some of the uh, cardio precautions. Like, it wasn't, a, it was nothing. It was really not a big deal. There's such a stigma, at least in the yeah. United States. I mean, there's such a stigma of, of guilt. Yeah. And, and, I, and I feel like, too, like, if we don't do that education with our clients on this, that they're, they're going to do it anyway. They're yeah. going to have sex. But we want them to be safe. And we, we want to make sure that they're, you know, keeping their sternal precautions and their hip precautions um, and everything. And if we ignore that area, you know, you kind of risk 
Yet it was crazy having that, more injury. That one research article we talked about oh, on our gosh, first yeah. episode that <laughs> where where schools in the United States were reporting what they were teaching about sex. And orthopedics was like it was like less than five percent of the program said they were addressing sex with orthopedic. And we were like, How how are we not talking about hips and knees and backs? It blew my mind. Maybe they just assume once you get something replaced, that's it, it's over. It's over, it's done. Yeah. Yeah. No, no more sex. Sorry. Too bad if you're, you know, in your thirties or forties, that's it. It's over. Yeah. And you got um, we were actually oh, yeah. oh sorry, we no, were you're... actually really curious, knowing that you're in Australia. So in our OT Practice Act, um, it you know, it kind of outlines what are activities of daily living and, and it specifically states that sexual activity is. So we're kind of curious is how other countries, you know, where does sexual activity fit into your practice? Is it explicitly stated as part of OT practice? That's a good question. I'm not sure what I I don't actually think it's usually listed as an ADL. Um, I think it's just looked at, you know, like other occupations as just something you can you can engage in. I don't think it's listed as like it's it's almost. I guess when I think about it like that, it's almost to the degree that I, I don't think it's given the importance that it deserves, kind of thing. Because you know, it should be an ADL for most. Yeah, in our framework and the, the occupational therapy practice framework. In the States, it is. I mean, it, it's ADLs, and one of the ADLs is listed as a sexual activity. And then the other category of social participation, the kind of dating and leading up to that is it, it explicitly states like the sexual activity. Yeah. But we're not sure. Um, the, the, one of the most fascinating things about entering this podcasting world is entering the international world of OT. Yeah. <laughs> Which has been great. It's very different <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. I, yes, find, yes. I find the same thing talking to Americans because your health system and your, you know, education system and everything is so different to here. Like you guys are, even to the point like you guys are uh, like master's level registration. We're not yeah. Yeah. like we, we do bachelor's programs at the moment. And terminology is different. Like we learned yesterday, somebody asked us on Twitter about sexual activity with learning disabilities, which we discovered very quickly that a learning disability in the States is very different than a learning disability in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Where in the United Kingdom, it falls under what we would call an intellectual disability or a cognitive disability. Okay. Uh, so we're learning a lot about yeah. the world, world of OT, <laughs> literally. <laughs> There's a lot of things that are very like specific to the United States, especially in mental health. Um, like even diagnostically, you guys have the DSM and you guys are pretty much the only ones that use it. Everyone else in the world, everyone else in the world uses the ICD-10, which is the international, international classification of disease. And the United States has their own little special book that they have to use. Well, they don't have to. Well, I think they do have to. ICD-10 ICD just well, not for mental health. Yeah. But for like billing purposes and everything, oh, yeah. everything is like ICD-10 codes. Yeah. So we. For diagnostic purposes, you know. But even then, if you have a look at it, the United States has its own version of the ICD-10. We do? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because because of your insurance codes. So you have, uh, you have, you have your own version, which is slightly different because I've had students that 
because uh, I work in academia as well. I've had students that have written assignments and handed in like around diagnostic criteria and stuff, and I'm like, that doesn't look right. And when I looked it up, it's from the American version. <laughs> Yours is like the ICD. 10 cm or something i don't know what cm stands for but yeah you have your own version so well done oh, of course, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> I, I have no defense for that right? yeah. uh, gotta be special Gee. Yeah. yeah so is your research around this area or is this just a personal passion project no pun intended but yeah right um my <laughs> My research, so I'm in a PhD program currently, um, I really am into occupational science and occupational justice, mm -hmm. um, specifically with social participation, which really sexual activity kind of, you know, it falls under that umbrella. And like I said, looking at the research and from an occupational justice perspective, you know, why are we not addressing this with, with everybody, with all clients, you know, everybody should have the right as, as a human right to engage in sexual activity and sexual pleasure. I did notice that you've got occupational therapy without borders there behind you. <laughs> yes. It's your little, little OT tribute wall behind you full of textbooks, but right, yes. Right. The best book is, is this one. I did I see really that. I'm like, what is that? It's the best APA manual. Though you probably use APA. It's Bitch Slap APA, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah, we use it. Not that it's particular book, but. It's the most entertaining APA manual I've ever seen. Yep. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll have to bitch slap APA. All right. I'll have to Google that one. Yeah. So my, my research then is back to the inflammatory bowel disease and looking at quality of life issues and implications for occupational therapy. Um, so I think a big part of that is going to be the sexual satisfaction and being able to just being comfortable. Um, I even just read a research article last night a survey of people with IBD where it was even finding difficulty making friends yeah. um, just because of the fatigue and the pain and not being comfortable going out. If you don't know where toilets are, you're just in too much pain. And that's the thing. Like I, I think a lot of OTs don't, I think this is why it's kind of ignored in a lot of cases is a lot of the things that might affect sexual function affect a lot of other things. Mm -hmm. And it's right. easy for the OT to just focus on those other things because they're more comfortable in talking about it. You know, if it's if they've only got limited range of motion in the hip or they've got pain somewhere, like you can focus on that and you don't have to focus on, or you don't have to, in air quotes, um, focus on specifically the sexual function when that's going to affect it probably just as much and it may even be more important to the person. Like, so what? I can't, you know, do my groceries. At least I can get off kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So that other article I read, it was a qualitative study of um, people after stoma surgery. And one of the little anecdotes was the, it was a woman who had a urostomy and it was her husband talking. And he said, initially, the doctor told her just to not have sex. It wasn't even like a for a short period of time. It was just like, just don't, just don't have sex. <laughs> just stop. Yeah. <laughs> And then it's not important. And yeah. then, so then the husband is going on to say like when she would be interested, they would have sex, but she wasn't that interested. So then the doctor's approach was to put the husband on a medication that would lower his sex drive. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> that was, Can you do that? Is that legal? I don't know. Like 
there were so many like ethical implications and the whole like human. I, it blew my mind. Wow. I don't think, I don't think you wouldn't be allowed to do that here. Like that. No, would... and this wasn't, I'm trying, this was not in the United States. So I think there were cultural oh, differences. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. you wouldn't have to be able to do that. In, but um, I want to say it was Iran. Wow. Um, but any, but no matter where, I couldn't believe like, just don't buy, just, we're just going to cut off your size drive. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate of like trying to ignore talking about sex. <laughs> let's, like, yeah. let's just, yeah. let's just kill everything. Andrew Kerr for all. <laughs> Jeez. Stop it all from working. Wow. Yeah, that, that is wild. Yeah, hopefully that's a once off. Hopefully. Don't want that happening to <laughs> but I don't know. Jeez. So, with regards to, like, have you got a lot of feedback since you, like, you've dropped your first episode now? Have you got a lot of feedback from clinicians and that sort of stuff since then? We've, we've gotten a lot of really positive feedback. Um, actually, the president of our the American Occupational Therapy Association is now started following, following us. Twitter. Like, that kind of blew my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, things like that are just kind of, they're mind-blowing. <laughs> yeah, and then like we were um, on the agenda for a faculty meeting at one of the universities in our area, basically like, hey, everybody look at this. Like, this is what's going on out there. So it's been it's been really exciting. Yeah, I know. I found it. I don't even know. I think I would just every now and then I'll just go on and have a look for you know if there's any new OT podcasts. And I found yours, and I'm like, literally, I think I found it the day it came out. So that was a bit of a fluke. But I listened. To, I was up. It was late. I would stayed up and listened to it anyway. And I'm like, this is awesome. And I think I sent you guys an email like the next day. <laughs> you were quick. Yes, yeah. You were quick. <laughs> Which is, it's been like that. We had just, we just established the like Twitter and Instagram before we had done anything. We weren't promoting it. We just kind of established it to get the name. And within like 48 hours, we had 50 followers from around the world, all OT practitioners. <laughs> we were like, whoa. Yeah. People want to hear <laughs> like about we this We haven't topic. even done anything yet <laughs> other than tag. I think we had like hashtag sex is a needy hell and hashtag occupational therapy. Yeah. And I think that even that highlights something with regards to the profession. Like it's one of those things where I think 10 years ago, maybe people were actively avoiding talking about it. And now I get the sense that people aren't necessarily actively avoiding it. They're just scared of it. Yeah. And I think the, I think the podcast is why it's a good platform because you can secretly, you don't have to go to a continuing course. You can just secretly in your car or whatever. Um, listen and kind of think about the topics that we're bringing up. Mm-hmm. Although that would be a very interesting continuing ed course. Yes, we're actually we're working we're, on one. Yeah, of course we, you are. We're on a proposal. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, when I say would have been, oh, when I, my very last semester of uni, a very long time ago, um, we had these elective modules that we could do uh, and one of the ones was sexuality because our head of school at the time was like one of, I think he may have been the only or one of the only registered sex therapists in the country. He was from out of, he was from Hong Kong or somewhere, but he was obviously working in Australia at the time. So he actually put together a, I think it was like a two day workshop on mm-hmm. sexuality and he was obviously an OT as well. So it was all about that. And then, 
I remember <laughs> there was, I think there was probably 20, 25 people in this workshop. And I just remember, because again, like it never overly phased me, but I remember looking around the room and seeing people like covering their eyes and like <laughs> la- giggling like little like kids and all this sort of stuff. Because there was, there was like videos, not porn videos, but like um, videos of people in, I think one of them I remember anyway, was a dude in a wheelchair uh, and his partner demonstrating like how they could, you know, be intimate. They were, they were we clothed. Can, we can yeah. top this. Yeah. You can top <laughs> it? Speaking of, speaking of things that aren't porn, but actually kind of are porn, <laughs> the program, we both graduated from the same program, but several years apart. I've, I was before you. Yeah. Um, but in the program we went to, and if, I, there's a few other colleges I know in the United States that use this video. We watched a video that it was individuals with disabilities having sex. There was no, there was penises, there was vaginas, there was penetration. There I mean, and no... it, it, but, it, but it was from an educational perspective. Mm. So it wasn't like just, you know, it was kind of like there were psychologists um, and doctors and physicians. It was, and it was made for people it. with spinal cord injuries. Like, here's how you can still have sex. Mm. But we watched it with our entire class, which is an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. You're sitting in a room for your classmates <laughs> watching with your professor and the one guy throws his girlfriend on the kitchen table and wheels right up and then just goes to town on her. Yeah, that's that would be it interesting was, with a room full of people. It's very memorable. It's not something you forget easy. No. No, it, it's like the legend of there's a lot of OTs when I meet. I'm like, so did your program did they show you the Sex yeah, video. The video. And if, if they did, you know, we're like, oh yes, yeah, yeah we know what like, sex video. You're like part of an exclusive club then when you've seen the video. <laughs> it's just the club to be part of. But no, like I remember it being. It was actually it was a really good workshop in that it was it it highlighted a lot of things again at that point. Well, I hadn't really started a career yet, but at that point, I hadn't really thought of. Um, with regards to just you know touch and toys and all these sort of things that you don't, you know, when you're training for four years to be a professional, a health professional, and then someone highlights that and you, it was almost like a light bulb moment where you're like, oh, yeah, that actually does fit. This isn't as weird as it seems on paper. So, again. Well, I think that's how, when people listen to the the bondage toy episode, I feel like that it's going to be the same. It's going to be like white. They're talking about bondage, and then it's going to be like, oh, oh that, that makes, makes so much sense. perfect sense. Why have we not been doing this all along? I'm pretty sure their their uh, profits are going to skyrocket <laughs> after this episode. It'll just <laughs> be a, it'll be all like work orders from OT practices <laughs> and that sort of thing. <laughs> Maybe. So what? So, like you 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 said before, like one way that we can sort of, I guess, normalize it for students. How do you think we can get more therapists who have been mm-hmm. out there for years, probably never spoken about it in their lives, may even be, and I hate using this word, but may even be a little bit prudish in their own mm-hmm. personal lives, to be able to at least have a conversation with someone when the other person brings it up. I think that's kind of what the idea of this podcast was in general was let's get this conversation started. Like 
there are other people out here that want to have this conversation and, and, and it's not taboo. It's not risque. It's, it's life. And that's why we want to make it more fun and casual conversation just to make it a little more accessible and comfortable because I do think, and I think you're right. I think I've worked, I mean, I've worked with some, some OTs that were just very religious and they think it's wrong for a single person to have sex. So they're not going to, they're going to kind of put that on their client. Like, well, they shouldn't right. be having sex. So I'm not going to talk to them. <laughs> which, which is actually very interesting. So a good friend of mine um, has his PhD in human sexuality studies. Um, but it's actually a dual degree that is um, also with Catholic education. Oh, so looking at wow. it from the, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. And, and actually him and I have a lot of conversations um, regarding sexuality and he's actually one of my, um, hopefully the co-presenter for the SSO conference, uh, specifically, he has also developed a curriculum to educate healthcare professionals on how do you talk to individuals that are in the BDSM community um, about their sexual practices, because they may come in with these injuries, but they are consensual injuries. You know, and how can, you know, doctors, nurses, OTs, PTs, all of these medical professionals have this conversation? The because, area of cultural competence that we don't right. really talk about. Which I think is, is fantastic that this curriculum is being developed. Mm -hmm. So who would that be delivered to? Just to like in-service type thing for clinicians or? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Then that's, again, there you go. There's another thing I wouldn't have thought of. Obviously, you're aware that it happens, but until I guess someone comes to you with some sort of injury like that, yeah. it's like, well, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just think more education. Even um, somebody posted on a Facebook group an article about transgender sex, um, like detailing one specific sex act, and it was interesting because it was an it was an OT Facebook group or about sex, it's, I think it's called intimacy for OT. Um, and some people in the group were offended by the article. <laughs> and there was, there's bad language in it, but I mean, it was, it was just somebody keeping it real about this particular sex act. But I'm like, if we're gonna help people engage in what they wanna engage in, we have to understand all the different possibilities and like your, do it. your average person isn't going to come in speaking in clinical terms. Yeah. Like they're going to come in and use these slang terms like muffing. And, yeah, muffing you know? was the act. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that, so even some people who might be, I guess, open to discussing some aspects of it, there's still going to be, more than likely some, you know, of the more, I guess, kinkier acts and that kind of thing that they're not going to be willing to talk about. Like, you, you know, like, you know, someone who might be, you know, more than willing to talk about anything except for when it comes to, you know, transgender sex or that kind of thing. Like, how can we, yeah. that's, I don't know, if, I don't even know if we can. Can we make the know, whole lot more accessible or is that mission impossible? Yeah. Right. That gets like the million dollar question, you know, because you've got then essentially this like double marginalized population where, you know, they may engage in alternative sexual practices that are outside kind of that norm, quote unquote. And, you know, but then they also have a disability and, you know, you know, we're, which a lot of times, you know, disability, people with disability are seen, seen as being asexual. Mm. You know, how are we addressing this now double marginalized population? I guess that's one of the things I've, I've talked about a fair bit with my students is 
having enough self-awareness to know where they're coming from so that they can separate their own thoughts, beliefs, ideas from like what they're actually clinically trying to do. I don't, I haven't, I, well, I haven't, I haven't ever come across a situation where I've had, you know, worked with anyone from the, you know, transgender group or even at all, let alone with regards to sex. I don't know yes. how effective having those conversations that I've had with my students would be if they came up against a situation like that. And it's hard. I have had clients who are transgender, um, but it was one in particular. I remember it was, it was such a big deal in the facility. It wasn't like a patient just came in and this patient, she was older. Um, she had transitioned as a teenager. She had been living as a woman happily since she was like 14 or 15. Um, and she was a really good advocate for herself. So she came into the facility, making sure it was in her chart that while well, legally she was still male and she still had male parts. Mm -hmm. She lived as a woman and, and we should be using those pronouns. Um, and I, for the most part, people were freaking out. <laughs> and I don't even think, I think it was just a matter of that idea of something different and like, we just don't know. Um, so it was like me and two or three other people that were comfortable, okay, and whatever. But then there, then there became other issues of, of privacy violations because then people were talking about it when they shouldn't have. And, and then other patients were talking about her. And um, I feel like we have a long way to go before people kind of can accept somebody for who they are. I wonder if it's, and I'm not trying to like justify, but I wonder if it's just a case of for most people like myself, like you don't, see those situations very often so mm -hmm. like people still do see it as oh my god that's that's so different that's different from me yeah. that's different from everything i've worked with so far that's mm -hmm. whereas there were some things you know 50 years ago that might have been seen as different that are now just normal like homosexuality yeah Right. Back, in the, back in the day, you know, oh that's so different like it's bad it's blah 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 but now it's very normalized hopefully majority of people are you know not stressed out by it or put out by it because in the end it's got nothing I to do with them. I live in the them. United States I'm sorry to say there's still plenty of people stressed out. Oh there's still plenty but I, I would hope that they're not the majority nowadays. No no so. I don't think that's the farm from the majority but yeah I do think it's similar to that where we just need um people just need to get used to all the different different lifestyles different I mean, and that's going to be across the board, not even necessarily with just transgender, like everything. You know, like I said, like these alternative sexual practices of BDSM and well, even the idea you know, that not everybody's in a monogamous relationship, but right. polyamorous relationships, like happy, healthy polyamorous relationships. And as healthcare workers, we have to be able to to maneuver those those family dynamics. It's especially if it, you know, it's it falls outside of whatever our, and it becomes, I think part of that cultural competency, yep. you know, that it's not just what are our cultural beliefs, but we have to be aware of what else is out there. And the idea that we have to work, we have to treat all, everyone is an equal. Yeah. So even, I mean, I give this example to my students too. You're going to have to go in a room with maybe a, a racist who's 
saying racist things and saying horrible things that you don't agree with, Mm -hmm. but you're still going to have to stay calm and be compassionate and have empathy and, and figure out how to, how to help that person. So if you walk into a room with somebody who's maybe transgender and you don't, you're not comfortable with that, or you don't, you have some issue with it, you're just going to have to put, you're still going to have to be the compassion and the empathy. And, and then I think once people have more and more of those experiences, then, then you suddenly you're like, well, we're all pretty much the same. <laughs> we're all still right. humans. Like this isn't that big of a deal. We all breathe. We all that's eat. That's my hope. All, yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and I think like that's, that's a good point in that even if you look at a very similar situation that, you know, is completely aside from sex, I think a lot of people will be able to conceptualize it better. Like I've, I, examples that I give with my students because working in mental health, quite often I had to work with people that, had committed some really mm-hmm. brutal crimes, mm-hmm. right. um, you know, rape, murder. Like you, you sometimes see people at their worst. Mm-hmm. You still have to work with them. They're still a person. They still have the right to, you know, whatever service you're there to I, give. I want to clarify: we're not equating that. I no, 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 definitely not, definitely not. <laughs> I was more thinking of the the personal thing of my my uh, values opposing the person that yeah, I was I working with. So, yeah, definitely not comparing those two. They're very <laughs> yeah. very different. Very different. Is that but no, that's yeah. exactly Jeez. what I'm saying. No matter what, mm. we have to have. It's still a human that we need to provide some level of care to and have empathy. But I wonder if uh, if we're able to teach people about that and the fact that you know they need to look you know outside of their values or leave their value system out of it by using examples other examples other than mm-hmm. sex things that they would come in to contact mm-hmm. with more often so mm-hmm. like your example of having to work with someone who might be overtly racist mm-hmm. you still have to do it well how is that any different to if you come into contact with someone mm-hmm. who's transgender you still work with them yeah you still work with them no matter what because I guess that's 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 one way of getting, I guess, the the concept of having to or not having to, but being able to work with someone who's very different from you across. The only mm-hmm. downside I see is one of the things that we need to be doing, and I think you guys all agree, is talking about it more. And that's the downside of doing, giving examples like that is we're not talking about it directly as much. Mm-hmm. We have to talk about it directly. <laughs> yeah. And there's just no way around. And we're just not, as a profession, I think, talking about it enough. We don't live in a society where everything is like, you know, rainbows and butterflies. Like, there's, we, we really have to get into some of these there's deeper topics. There's whips and chains as well. Yeah, there are yep, whips, yep. chains, <laughs> rainbows, <laughs> anal beads. <laughs> I wonder if, so one of the things I was thinking the other day when I, was thinking about, you know, talking to you guys today. Um, With regards to, so you were talking about transgender people before, but I I wonder whether, because there's a whole heap of different, you know, gender pronouns and categories and that people identify Mm -hmm. with and stuff. Now, I wonder whether OTs as a whole are even educated enough around what that, what they are. I I don't think so. Right. 
that's even, I'm still working on that. I was having lunch a, few, a while back with a friend of mine um, who was just because of things going on in her family was trying to explain specifically what gender and what pronouns to use for her child. Um, and as informed as I think I am on some things, I was like, oh my gosh, you've lost me here. I'm so confused <laughs> um, because I, that's another thing I just don't think uh, we talk about enough. And it's one of those things that makes people uncomfortable because it's outside of that, what we know of male and female and he and she. Right. Well, and at our facility, so I work in private practice um, in addition to working on my PhD. And, you know, we have some clients that would prefer to be used they, them, like yeah. not these non-specific gender pronouns. Um, and so it is starting to kind of, you know, we're kind of building this more awareness in this kind of rural suburb. But it has um, to be talked about. But yeah, but and, and, and you know, so we're starting to see it a little bit more. Um, because I think before everybody kind of shied away from mm-hmm. it and nobody wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I wonder, like, just having a look at the internet, different forums and that kind of stuff, it can be quite heated, some of the conversations around, especially mm-hmm. around the pronouns. Because um, I know there's a few things that have happened mainly, well, in Canada mainly, that sort of American, a lot of people that I've, conversations I've seen from people in America have gone, you know, I don't want that to happen here around, um, I think it was around uh, some law about misgendering people or something like that in Canada and Americans were cracking up about it, not not happening there kind of thing. Yeah, or even like all the issues with um, the bathroom laws that are happening in the United States that I think are absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous and asinine, <laughs> but that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> So what are, just just because I don't know what what's the bathroom laws? Oh, so there's some some laws where basically like depending on what your genetic makeup is, that's the bathroom that you need to. So to same, use. yeah. So if you so despite what you identify as, and if you are a a genetic male living as a woman, you would still have to then use a male bathroom, or you could get arrested. Like there there was certain. Uh, cities. I don't think states. There's yeah. some cities in the country that were. I don't know if anyone successfully passed a law. They they've come close. I they've, don't know. Yeah, they've been trying. Or even in like schools, um, looking at it from elementary schools, high schools, colleges. That that you know you have to use it based on what your genetics are. Um, which then again, like then you start to think about okay, if someone is living as a woman, I'm guaranteed, and I you know, and as a woman, suddenly now there's a woman in the men's bathroom. You're like, wait a second, what's going on? Or vice versa, there's a male in the woman's bathroom. It's then you know, it gets weird. As opposed to someone, a, a woman walks in the woman's restroom. I have no have idea no what's going on under. I don't know what. I don't care what's yeah, going on under. I know what's in your pants. Like that's fine. <laughs> How do they even like? How would you I know. prove that? Exactly. That's the point. Be like, come here, we're gonna do a DNA test. Right. Just Before to see if you use the right see if you use the right bathroom. Yeah. There's all sorts of problems with it. The world's gone mad. Yes. I because I I'm far from up on all the latest terminology and that sort of stuff. I I had to look up what cisgender meant, and apparently that's just people who identify as what they were genetically born as. Because I've seen that term used a lot, but a lot of the conversations I see, so I I 
coach powerlifting. I'm involved in powerlifting. And in America, there's a big um, controversy at the moment within powerlifting about whether uh, transgender, like essentially similar to the bathroom thing, which which competition, whether the male competition or the female competition, do transgender people have to compete in? Um, And the international... Federation made one ruling. I can't remember which way it is, but then the American uh, affiliate of that ignored it and went the opposite way. Um, I can't remember which way it was either way. But yeah, so there's a big controversy in America because they're essentially going against what the International Federation saying and that kind of thing. Some people are saying they need to make another, like a third category. Um, Well, and that's that's interesting too because then there was that story of this woman who had she had a genetic disorder or whatever so she had a higher level of testosterone um and whether or not she could compete in the olympics as a female competitor um despite you know genetically she is a female she identifies as a female and all and all of that but they felt that because of because of her testosterone level it was more of an advantage um, from an athletic perspective. So it's not even necessarily just gender identity, but looking at intersex um, and, and all of those type of, of genetic conditions that are out there as well. Well, I think that's that's one of the issues is sp- for sports specifically, testosterone levels or the testosterone-estrogen ratio is the main marker that they're looking at to differentiate people. So you have to be under this ratio to compete in the women's and you have like it there's got to be more to it than that someone i heard someone (laughs) say the other day that i can't remember what it was might have been on a tv show but complex uh complex issue requires a complex solution and i'm like you can't fix a really complex issue with oh yeah here's the level anything above that anything below that easy doesn't work like that there's too many other variables going on right I wonder, have you come across any OTs that might specialize in this kind of stuff? Any transgender OTs or OTs that work specifically with, like in transgender communities or that sort of thing? No, and I don't know. I should. Now, where we live, there is um, one of the hospitals has a, uh, it's not a trans. Gender. It's an LGBT center, but I know they do a lot of work, especially with younger, um, like eight, nine, ten, young, even younger, um, kind of dealing with their feelings, figuring it out. Like they're born male, identifying female, whatever it may be. And I'm trying to think. I don't know if they have OTs though. I think it's mostly um, there's medical doctors that are dealing with any kind of hormone. Yeah. Um, and then psychologists. I don't mm-hmm. know if they have OTs and something like that. Something yeah. to look into. Yeah. Because I wonder, the, the reason I wonder is whether or not from an occupational point of view, there was much difference. Because from my completely ignorant perspective, I couldn't think of too much on terms of occupational um, engagement that would or it should shouldn't. be different. Other than, like I said, some specific sexual acts. Yeah. But other than that, no. I mean, you're like still it shouldn't living be. your life and needing to do what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Should be the same approach. What do you need to do? What can we do to help you right. do it? <laughs> right. 
when it comes down to it, it's pretty what's, what's meaningful what's to you. Important. We're a very common sense profession. <laughs> we, we're, we are, right? <laughs> what do you need to do? How can I help you do that? That's the basics of it. <laughs> it's a little complicated, but that's the basics. All these people that think, you know, OT is hard to define. Look at that. Easy. <laughs> that easy. Yeah. What do you need to do during your day? That's what we work on. Including <laughs> sex. Exactly. During the day, the afternoon, the evening, during whatever. Right. Little afternoon delight. Exactly. You know. <laughs> what? And I just thought of this before. So in terms of, I was just thinking about the powerlifting example in terms of them thinking about making a third category for lifters that are transgender in your opinion ideally because i can see pros and cons of that yes pros they get to engage and it's essentially less you know testing and that kind of stuff they'd have to essentially prove themselves one way or another if they were only going to fit into the two categories ideally what do you think would be better because i can see that being quite almost segregating people further by putting yeah, them in a, in a separate then, category kind of thing. And same with the bathrooms. Right. And I almost feel like it then isolates an entire other group of people when you have these people that are intersex, hmm. that have both male and female genitalia or that are, you know, have these XXY chromosomes and, and these things that, you know, it's, it's not binary anymore. You know, there isn't really necessarily a definition and it's not transgender either. Yeah. Um, it becomes this whole other situation. But we're so stuck in male, female. Right. You were born one way. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes, and sometimes so you're, you're born both. Yeah. And sometimes you're born, you know, it's it's not as simple as, as that. And I feel like it's so deeply rooted in society, though, like what a boy should like and what a girl should like. And right. What a boy should wear. We, I think we, Blue, pink, a lot trucks, bobbies. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like this is kind of this bigger concept than, yeah, you know, like I said, like I feel like we almost then start to isolate this whole population, you know, that is that is very marginalized because mm-hmm. they don't really necessarily fit in anywhere. Because I wonder what would be, so like changing the whole of society's opinion. That's a big job. <laughs> but I wonder. <laughs> I wonder whether, like, what would be a better outcome would be to, yeah, sort of, you know, make their own sort of category for, like, either bathrooms or sport or whatever it is, or still continue to try and push against the popular opinion to try and change that, or both. Who knows? Yeah, and in terms in terms of, like, the bathrooms, and actually in our area, we've, we've been seeing this a lot, which has been fantastic, is that it's it's, like, more like the family bathroom style, like whether or not you have young children or you're a male or a female or transgender or intersex, whatever, it's just a bathroom. Whoever needs to take a shit goes into that bathroom. Like it doesn't matter. (laughs) But I do. I think more and more restaurants and bars I'm seeing, it's just, there's a bathroom, right? Men and women are all, we're all going into the same bathroom. I did see a funny video yesterday. It was like college humor or something that was, like a man and a woman standing out the front of the bathroom trying to work out which one was the male and the female and it just had like <laughs> weird symbols on the doors. Symbols get weird. And then when they work then when they walked in it was the door to the same room anyway. It was just a big unisex <laughs> right. one. They spent like five minutes out the front trying to work it out and what the symbols mean and 
Most I, women I know will go into a men's room the second the women's line is long. Well, I do it all the time. So, all the time. Uh, it's no I don't care. See, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think guys, I don't <laughs> think guys would do that mainly because they'd probably yeah. get in trouble. Not anything yeah. to do with the bathroom, <laughs> just because for some reason it seems weirder that a man is in the women's bathroom than the other way around. That's another thing maybe we need to change. <laughs> but then that goes much deeper into other issues. So yeah. we won't even go there. But then again, okay, so, so sorry to go back to this whole bathroom issue, but then again, let, let's say you're a parent with um, a child with a disability who is a teenager or an adult. Mm-hmm. Like you need to take them into a mm-hmm. restroom. So I'm a mom with a, you know, a son who is, you know, 18 with a disability. Am I going to take him in the men's room or Mm. am I going to take him in the women's room? You know, which then to me makes that inclusivity idea of it's just a bathroom. Mm. Just go into the bathroom. And I think, yeah, that's got to be the way forward. I hope so. For the most part, no one's doing anything different in there. Right. Or, you Some know, people you are sitting down. That's about it. Bathrooms yeah. that it's just you know you don't have the the rows of you know sixteen stalls in there. It's just okay. Here's one bathroom and here's yeah. a door with another bathroom and whoever needs to. Use it. So it becomes yeah, almost like uni- universal design. Yeah, you know oh, yeah. anybody can use it, no matter mm. what, no matter who needs it. Whether you have a wheelchair or you're a mom with a stroller or you know you've got a kid with a disability or money, too. Not right? having to have two separate. You know, it's, it's just, it, it becomes universal design. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way. I want, I, <laughs> we've come full circle, mic drop. <laughs> we've solved the bathroom issue. We're on. Um, I wonder if there's a way that we can implement that universal design theory into, you know, talking about sexuality as well, sex and sexuality as well. Because, again, it it's not, I mean, it's obviously... Actually, we were looking at toys. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking because you were talking about before that there was a range specifically for people with disability. But what's the difference? Are they like could anyone use them, or is there any reason why people with a disability couldn't use normal toys? Or well, even like the bondage toys, the bondage toys are are, like for the most part, for the most part, the bondage toys that this company was promoting for people with disabilities were just the toys that were meant for bondage. And then they realized, oh, hey, this person can't spread their legs on their own. A leg spreader would work for, to help them have sex. Um, though he did say, when we were talking to the CEO, he did say there's, there were some things that were designed specifically for people with disabilities. But then we saw there was like sex in the shower kits that were literally like the suction grab bars that OTs might recommend. That you would find in a therapy catalog, and but they're selling it as a, as a sex toy. <laughs> Probably three times the price in the therapy catalog. <laughs> it's like it's like cheaper to go buy it from the sex toy yeah. catalog than it is from the therapy catalog. So I'm just gonna say yeah. it over there. Over there. <laughs> but even in terms of like vibrators, um, we were, and that's actually the next the next podcast we're gonna record is about kind of the accessibility of toys. Um, they're, I mean, they're not meant for anyone with arthritis or missing any fingers or any dexterity issues, <laughs> right? Right. Or even we were even looking into flavored lubes with people who are diabetic and is there sugar in these lubes and something you would and that, never even that thought of. One of the, that's the thing. We didn't either. And we walked into one of the sex toy shops and said what we were doing. And that's the first thing that the, the 
the store clerk brought up, she was like, oh yeah, I've had diabetics come in saying that the flavored lube spike their sugar. And then, and then she's on the phone trying to find, she found one that was flavored with stevia for the diabetics. Like who'd have thought? Right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, it's a you whole just don't other know world. Don't know. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wouldn't have even considered that. No. She was talking about a local urologist that refers patients to the store for penis pumps. Yep. Because there are there are like medical ones, but they're too expensive. So she just sends them to the local sex and, toy and shop. And the ones that are at the sex toy shop are better quality yeah. than the ones that the insurance company provides. And they're cheaper. Mm-hmm. Just even though that particular product buying from a sex shop as opposed to an insurance company just sounds like it would be a better thing. <laughs> like, Experience. Right? Why would you buy it? Like yeah. that's their thing. That's their their niche. They're going to know what they're doing. I think I'll buy it off those people yeah. as opposed to the insurance company that, you know. And God then it makes it, it less from. clinical. The whole thing just makes it just yeah. makes it less clinical, more fun. Except the one the one the clerk was telling us that one guy tried to give him Trying to give her his prescription for the penis pump. And she was like, well, we really don't accept those here. Like they were going to bill insurance. You can just buy it. It's okay. Right. Just, just take it. You just, it's on the shelf. It's over-the-counter medication, that one. Is there... Do you think there's scope for OT to actually... I think I already know the answer to this. But is it scope for OT to actually get involved in the manufacture of some of these... Yes. Toys. Yes. yes. And there was that's actually what I thought. Re- yeah. yeah. There's actually a recent article that was was pairing OTs and sex therapists in designing accessible sex toys. And it's a fascinating article, like really looking at the ergonomics of sex toys for mm-hmm. people with physical disabilities. Well, and when we contacted that that company, um, I didn't have to explain what occupational therapy was. Okay. They had already they had already worked with occupational therapists. Um, specifically in some spinal cord rehab units um, and, and collaborated on some videos and, and things. So yeah, I definitely think there's a place for us in that, in that I, business. I think at the moment, especially in the States, it seems OT is getting into that sort of grassroots manufacture of things. Cause I know, I know the big thing over there at the moment is this Xbox controller that has, yes. you know, had an <laughs> OT input and, um, is yep. apparently doing great things for you know, people with disability who need accessible access to Xbox, whether it's games or rehab or whatever they're using it for. Um, but I think there's, again, coming back to universal design, I think there's a possibility that a lot of these toys, for the most part, probably wouldn't need to be specific to like design to a disability. And they could be more universal in their construction mm-hmm. or their you know, the design. And, and even kind of beyond that, which, you know, trying to research how can people with disabilities put on a condom that there's really nothing that assists people to put on a condom. I found one condom that is based out of the UK that has handles on either side to be able to put it on. And then you, and And then then you take, and then the the handle pops off. Um, But it's, it's not easily accessible to obtain in the United States. Um, I don't know how easily it would be to obtain um, where you're at, but, but that is like, th- mm. like nobody's thinking about that because not only is sex important, but safe so sex. is safe sex, you know? And like, how do we put on condoms? <laughs> you know? 
I don't know why. As soon as you said that, I pictured like a, a little tiny sock Don Doffer. <laughs> right? Tiny sock aid. Yeah, yeah. Like, maybe I'm onto something. Maybe I should start manufacturing <laughs> this product. Uh, I feel like product. whoever can come up with the sock with the condom donor is, is going to make a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be. There's got to be something in there. Yeah, because it's, it's... And even as, so aside from toys, obviously toys are one aspect of it. Is there... Is there scope for OG to not only, I guess, talk about sex with uh, clients they're already working with, but maybe even someone to specialize in it? So someone that, uh, you know, other clinicians could refer someone to. Mm -hmm. I do think there's room for that. I think in this, like definitely in the States, you, the issue is you have to get out of the idea of insurance. And, and find other ways if it's going to be a private pay or some other funding source. Um, Cause I'm not sure Medicare. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Stay in for that. Maybe. You know? <laughs> Unless, you know, then, but then you get into the whole thing on what is insurance cover for males versus females, because which then there's different. some disparities there, which is a whole okay. different topic. <laughs> I don't know much about your Medicare system. Ours is, I, I don't. Like insurance would cover ED medication, but not, you know, for a long time they didn't cover birth control. You know, so it was okay. So child dysfunction, you could get covered, but birth control not. Now that's no, not changed. So that, yeah, sounds like a, that sounds like a ploy. They're trying to in, <laughs> yeah. increase well, the population. I mean, again, when you start men making laws and they have penises and, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Priority in the law. <laughs> I don't know what our, I don't think our Medicare system has any sort of well, not that I'm aware of, has any sort of favoritism in that aspect. I know there's been uh, conversations in Australia about the tax system because our tax system there's essential items that aren't taxed, and like female hygiene products weren't. For whatever that's, reason, that's weren't classified as an essential item, even though they're fairly essential. Yeah, yeah like yeah. The, the tampon tax. Yeah, that's an yeah. issue here. Um, but yeah, that's. But that's then again, issue. that's that's like state to state too, depending on who what's taxable and what's but not taxable. Which is I a think whole. most states have the yeah have yeah. the tampon tax. Yep. Yeah, it's it's. I still worry. Well, I'm not worried, but I, I I still wonder how long it's going to take until OTs loosen up and even to the point of being able to talk about it. Because even like some of the stuff we've talked about today so far, I think OTs need to start small and just start actually bringing it up before they start talking about transgender bondage sort of thing. That That might be a little bit past most yeah. people's comfort zones to start with. Right, bring it up. I think just like acknowledging that sex is an important part of your daily life. Like, and thinking about and what sex is that it's not just like a penis and a vagina. There's others. There's masturbation as part of that. There's just hugging and kissing and cuddling, fondling, fondling. <laughs> and see, that, that, and, and, that's that's an important thing too because I think most people might be nervous about bringing it up because they immediately jump to you know penetrating sex 
mm-hmm. when there's a lot of other things that they might be able to, to talk about, like it, it's sort of the intimacy side of it that might be a little easier to bring up to start with for some people who aren't overly confident with it. You know, hugging, kissing, touching. Yeah. One of my students undressing. actually asked. Me, yeah, when, yeah, undressing. One of my students asked last week when we were when we were going over the sexual activity lecture. He did say, "Well, should we be addressing foreplay too?" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely, absolutely." <laughs> you should. Because, it was a male. Know, it was a male that said that, wasn't it? It was a male. Yes, of course. <laughs> oh, of course. Right. Right. Is this, uh, yeah, is this important? That's a four separate thing of sex, right? How do we? How? Because this this could be a whole nother qualification. Yeah. How do we so get this much information to people? Obviously, the podcast is an awesome way to start bridging that conversation. But how do we, like, do we need to, I don't know. I, mean, I feel like we need to start by reaching academic programs and really making it more integrated within those academic programs. So as these new clinicians are coming out into the field, you know, they can be educating those that, you know, may have been practicing for, you know, a number of decades and really like, here's what's new, here's what's going on and making it more comfortable. And I think really just Mm -hmm. starting with academia is the, get them while they're young, right? Get them while they're fresh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Learned any bad habits. Not any new bad habits, anyway. Yeah, that new generation of, of OT practitioners. That seems to be the way. It seems to be the way this profession tries to change, make any change, any change at yeah. all. It's always we got to start with the students because everyone else is too concrete. It's hard. It's so it's difficult to change your practice when you've been doing something the same way for years and years. Or especially years. even too, there's been you know within the U.S., there's been almost this loss of occupation. And how do we get back into really like true occupational practice and looking at it from that perspective and not from that biomechanical, mm. you know, and so how are we going to make that change? Well, it's really through through students educating during their mm-hmm. their uh, clinical their experiences. Limited years. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one thing that we've been through as well is um, and it's starting to turn now. It's probably – over the cusp now uh but we've very much sort of drifted away from the occupation-based practice and now we're very much on the way back to it and a lot of our all of the the schools that i know of anyway are are very much promoting an occupation-based curricula um i don't i'm just trying to think of like how much of this kind of stuff is included in what we teach and I definitely think there could be more because um, it's important. I don't even know. I'll have to have oh, – that's that's going to be my new project. I'm going to have to investigate that. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how does how does your area define what occupation is? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing is there's, you know, 10,000 ways to define it and where does uh, – sex and sexuality will fit somewhere in amongst most definitions, but you where? You got to find out where, where, where do we look at it? Yeah, it's one of those. So for a lot of the the things that we teach or that I teach, um, I get a lot of our students to have a look at themselves, and more for a self awareness point of view. So things like value systems and how that's going to 
translate across to, you know, when they're working with people that are different from them, like we are talking about earlier. But that's, I, I think, using sexuality, sex and sexuality is probably another way that I might be able to do similar. Obviously, don't, I don't want them to share it, but being, getting them to be able to reflect on, well, how would you change, you know, your occupational engagement if you had, you know, a car accident or whatever injury or that sort of thing. Using it as a a reflective learning tool might be a way that, you know, some people can get their students to start thinking about it more and reflecting mm-hmm. on it more. And I think it's even like that concept of, you know, what if you couldn't have sex anymore? What if you couldn't have that intimacy with another individual? What would that do for your quality of life? And just like that self-reflection and realizing then how important is that to an individual? And understanding, because I've had many a student like assume that someone with like a, an ileostomy or colostomy wouldn't have sex. And, and that's kind of the, I have them reflect on that. Like, think about if it were you, do you, do you think that you would just like suddenly like not forget good. about that whole part of your life? Yeah. Orgasm. Sorry. Done. Because like, you changed no. the way you poop. <laughs> and then they're like, Oh well, yeah. But I'm like, but see, it right. sounds even more ridiculous when you say it like that. <laughs> exactly. Like, and maybe we need to start framing yeah. it that way. Like you're saying at the start with your podcast, like that sort of very regular language that you use around the topics makes it easier for people to process. Yeah. It makes more sense. Yeah. And I think that's, that's how the conversations have to be, which again gets back to why we want to be a little more casual on the podcast. <laughs> right. Well, with it's definitely working. <laughs> It's definitely, and that was the thing when I was, when I found it, I was like telling people that I know in that space, I'm like, found this podcast, check it out. Um, I gave them pretty much the same warning that I think you put in your intro thing. I'm like, they use very casual, sometimes explicit language. But the thing I like about it is it is research to the kilt. Like there is. We're like a fun journal club. (laughs) (laughs) With alcohol and yeah, that kind right? of stuff. The best kind of journal club. And that that I think that's what I like is that it's you very give a stack of journal articles she has just just for our current Is that for this episode for the next episode? That's what we were just working on. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like fifteen journal articles just holding up a pile of like fifteen. It's a good chunk. We're doing yeah, yeah, we're just doing the research for everybody. We're letting you know what's out there. And that's like I wouldn't have even known there was that much research in this area. Except for you. But the interesting thing is is that not all that research is in OT. We're we're going to other disciplines to find this research. Primarily other disciplines. Good. (laughs) And I think OT in general is really bad at that. We go, oh, we That's need to, not. we need evidence-based practice. I'm going to look in yeah. an OT journal. I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with us having to, looking outside of our profession and bringing that information back in. Just because it's yeah. not in an OT journal doesn't make it bad or toxic or you know not as good as what you yeah. find in an OT journal. Quite often, it's the other way around. You can find some amazing yeah. stuff in psychology journals or yeah. you know. Um, even professions medical that have been doing no offense to OT, but professions that have been doing research longer than us and have it down. 
Oh, yes. We're still learning <laughs> we how to do it. Yes, we, we, sh- we need to be, yeah, finding. So, yeah, we're doing, it's a journal club. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's definitely one of the most entertaining journal clubs I've found. So, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> Is there anything else you guys wanted to cover? Because I think we've gone almost full circle. I think we've covered a lot of yeah. all the fun stuff. Where can people find you or your podcast on, not necessarily you because you're a secret, but your podcast yeah. and stuff online? Doesn't it make it more fun that we're a secret? <laughs> For some people, I'm sure it does. It'd be like trying to guess as well. So podcast, right now we're, um, the main platform is Anchor. Um, and then that kind of pushes it out to, we're on Spotify and Google Stitcher. Podcasts, Stitcher. We're not on Apple yet, which upsets me. We're still waiting on Because, yeah, we're on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, um, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Stitcher. Um, we are also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. All at, at OT After Dark. And then we're also on OTAfterDark.com. And our website, we put all of our, since we are evidence-based, our website, we do upload all the journal articles. Yes, that was the other thing I really liked, was that you put all the references in the show notes. Yeah. Yes. So everybody can can take a look at what we're talking about and where the evidence is um, and the topics that we're talking about. That's awesome. Yeah, I may have been making it up about iTunes. I don't actually use iTunes, (laughs) but I swear swear for some reason that I'd seen it. We're waiting. We're waiting on Apple. Good on. But we're also on the OT Podcast website as well. Yes. Shameless plug, <laughs> otpodcast.com. Find OT After Dark and all of your favorite OT podcasts on that website. Some <laughs> random shameless plug. Thank you for that shameless plug. Yeah, thanks heaps for having a chat, guys. It's been very enlightening. Okay, but hopefully now, you know, you're more comfortable about talking about sex with your students. Hopefully other people that have been listening are going to be more comfortable. Got you thinking Um, outside the box a little bit, right? Literally outside of the box. (laughs) (laughs) Took them a while. (laughs) And there it is. Click. On that note. (laughs) It's definitely given me a few ideas that I can uh, have the conversations more and normalize it more with my my students and that kind of stuff so hopefully it it does similar for other people um i assume if they have any questions they can email you guys your email will be on or some contact details somewhere will be on your website you you can email us through our website website at otafterdark.com um there is a link to email us um but our email is otafterdark at gmail.com perfect (laughs) easy as that easy to find Awesome. Thanks very much, guys. That was fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us.